title of today's message is Quench That Thirst. And we're going to be focusing on John 7, 32 through 39 today. I'm going to start out with a little bit of a quiz. Let's see. Name of the product, Thirst Quencher for that deep down body thirst. Which one is that? Everybody remember that one? There you go, Gatorade. Gatorade Thirst Quencher. Gatorade was uh, actually made by the Florida football team, Florida State football team, the Florida Gators. That's kind of where the name came from. And I don't know how many of you have ever been in the deep south in late summer, early fall. It's hot. I'm talking July, August, September. It is hot. I am talking it is so hot. When you step outside, your sweat glands automatically open and you become drenched in sweat. It's like you are breathing water is how hot it is down there. It's usually in the high 90s with 100% humidity and it just sticks to you. It's just the kind of heat that you just can't get rid of. Air conditioners can't keep up. You hear about brownouts down there all the time from them trying to cool people down and everything. And it really affects professional athletes. Now, if you can just walk outside and get drenched in sweat like that, imagine what a football player is going through wearing all that padding and going through two or three a day practices that lasted two to three hours at a time. They're out there running around tackling and, and doing all these kind of things that are very, very strenuous in this heat, and they were just passing out left and right. So the football coach asked the School of Medicine, which was attached to the school, hey, is there something you guys can do to help us out? Because our, our players keep just dropping during practices, and even worse, during the second half of play during home games, these guys are just drained. They lose all their ability to, to run and, and, and do all the things that a football player has to do. Is there anything that you can do to help us? So the people in the School of Medicine got together and said, well, you know, what do we do to treat heat exhaustion? They said, well, we use lactated ringers. So what they did is they took lactated ringers and, and took the, the sodium, the sugar, the potassium, the phosphate, and put lemon juice in it and made it um, um, able to, they just made it good to drink and gave, started giving that to the players. And all of a sudden, the players were perking up. They're able to play better. They're able to get through their practices. No matter how much they sweat, they were still able to get back up and keep running. And they found out that this worked. As a matter of fact, Gatorade was uh, credited for them, um, the Florida Gators, winning the 1967 Orange Bowl because the other team gassed out in the second half and they were able to keep playing. So the Florida Gators found out, you know, this thing works. And they started marketing it, and that's how Gatorade was born. Now today, you walk through the supermarket, or you walk through Quick Trip, and you look for something to, treat, to drink, and you see dozens of options, don't you? You walk out along the coolers, you see coffee drinks and protein drinks and flavored waters and, of course, a few dozen different brands of soda. That doesn't even include the various beers and alcoholic beverages available. And quenching thirst, this idea of, of drinking something when we're thirsty, if you look at just the soft drinks that are out there, it's a $200 billion a year industry in our country. $200 billion. They say that um, by, um, by and large and way past any other food product that is bought in the United States, soda surpasses that by 
multiplied um, amounts and people just love their soda in this country. And the competition is fierce to provide that one drink that everybody will love because everybody is thirsty. So quenching thirst is going to be the subject of our uh, message today. Bringing it back to the scripture we're studying this morning, we have to remember the climate that Jesus was speaking to here. Israel is back then and is now a desert climate. Jesus is teaching during the Feast of Tabernacles, so it's August in Israel. August, maybe September, depending on when their calendar fell with our calendar. So it's going to be hot. Average of 90 to 100 degrees in Israel during that time. And I don't know if you've ever been in a desert, but that's just a whole different kind of heat. We talked about the south with the humidity. Well, that's the dry heat, but I'll tell you what, you get that desert sun baking you, and you'll know what it is to be thirsty, because you'll just dehydrate pretty quickly. So everybody that Jesus is talking to here is probably going to be a little thirsty. So Jesus masterfully uses this topic to make a very critical point of having a life that is pleasing to God. And that's going to be the subject of our sermon this morning. So let's just take a moment and pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord. We ask, Father, that you take this scripture that Jesus used to address a physical need and turn it into a spiritual necessity. I ask, Father, that you just help us to see that today. You help us to understand what it is to be spiritually thirsty and that we turn to you to quench that thirst. Father God, I ask this in your name. Amen. So Jesus sets up this teaching about thirst by pointing out the difference between the religion of Judaism that everybody listening there, remember he's teaching in the temple, so everybody there has been growing up with Judaism, that religion that, that teaches that you have to do this and that and everything else to make yourself pleasing to God. And he compares that with the relationship with God that Jesus wants to have with us and that's why he went to the cross that's what he came to repair that relationship and jesus start, starts teaching this in a very subtle way but in a way that makes the crowd and the jewish officials question the very thing that jesus will eventually drive home in verse 33 of john chapter 7 jesus said i am with you only for a short time and then i am going to the one who sent me you will look for me, but you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So this is a very mysterious statement to these people back then. They're, they're, they're trying to figure out exactly what is Jesus talking about. In the video, you saw the Jewish re religious leaders going back and forth with each other, pacing back and forth. Saying, what is he talking about? Does this mean he's leaving? Does that mean he's going to go and, and, and go to the Greek cities and teach the, the few Jews that might be there? I mean, that would be great because we'd be rid of them. We wouldn't have to worry about Jesus anymore. And then if Jesus goes into the Greek cities, that means that he's breaking the law and not living in, Jer in Jerusalem or, or in Israel, and then we can discredit him that way. So they're probably thinking, okay, great, Jesus is going away. Or maybe he's doing this thing that people would do back then to protest Roman rule, and they would kill themselves publicly as a protest to the Roman government. And so maybe he's talking about doing something like that. So they're trying to figure out, what, what, what is Jesus saying to us? And as usual, the religious leaders and most of the people that Jesus was talking to was trying to find an earthly answer 
to the spiritual question and the spiritual point that Jesus was trying to make. And nothing, nothing messes up our lives. Nothing messes up other people's lives. Like trying to find an earthly answer to a spiritual question. That will mess you up every single time. What they don't realize is that Jesus is making a spiritual statement right here. He is saying, you can't come where I am going. And the undercurrent of what Jesus was saying here is that I'm going to the Father. And what you guys don't understand is that heaven is a completely different environment than what you're used to. This is what Jesus is teaching. You can't survive in heaven the way that you are today. And this is the point that Jesus is trying to make to them. Several years ago, scientists studying genetics released a press statement saying that the DNA of a human being and other things in nature are very, very similar. I don't know if you remember seeing that on the news. They said it was so similar it proves evolution. They said, for example, you and I, everybody in this room, regardless of our ancestry, are 99.999% similar. We're all, we're all very, very, very close genetically to each other. Chimpanzee and humans are 96%, 96% alike. Dogs and cats are 90%. They both share 90%. In my opinion, I think the dogs edge out the cats a little bit, but that's just, that's just my opinion. Human beings and mouse and mice are 85% genetically similar. Human and cow is 80%, and humans and a fruit fly are 65% similar, genetically speaking. And as I said, the scientists further asserted that this proves evolution is a fact, since we're so genetically similar to other animals, that we all must have come from the same goo or ooze in the earth. Well, creationists and Christian uh, scientists came right back and said, well, duh, of course our DNA is going to be similar. We live in the same environment. We breathe the same air. We drink the same water. Some animals even eat other animals as food, and if they weren't genetically similar, it would be like trying to eat a rock. It, it wouldn't do any good for you and probably harm you if you tried to eat it. So Jesus is saying in this statement that our earthly makeup is incompatible with our existence in heavenly realms. If you transported a person of that era prior to Jesus' going to the cross from heaven or from earth directly to heaven, it would be like us catching a fish in a net and throwing it way up on the shore and saying, hey, I hope you have a great life. It's not going to go well for that fish, isn't it? It's not going to happen. A fish is designed for life in the water, like we are designed for life on dry land. We can't exist in each other's environment because we have the wrong genetic makeup. And it's just like that in the spiritual realm. The average person thinks they're immediately going to go to heaven when they die because they are quote-unquote a good person, right? If you ask anybody, they're not going to say, well, I'm just scum. They're not going to say, well, yeah, I'm a pretty awful person and I know I'm going to hell. If they, they say, you know, most people, well, they might joke about going to hell to be with their friends, but really, if you really boil it down to them, they'll say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I think I'll go to heaven. And what they don't understand is that flesh and blood cannot inherit what is a spiritual place. If God was 
to supernaturally transport a person from here to heaven, you would be a, they or us would be like a fish out of water, struggling even to breathe in this new environment because of sin. We cannot survive in that environment because it's the very presence of God. And Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, starting in verse 44, which, by the way, this verse is a great one to use on a person who thinks that they are good or good enough. Paul says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, and just real quick, Jesus is called the second or the last Adam, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, as is the heavenly man, so are also those of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. And here comes the important point. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot, cannot, it's an emphatic Greek, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. We need Jesus for that. So let's unwrap what Jesus is saying here. In Genesis chapter 3, God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden after they sin. And we've always been taught that that banishment was a punitive measure, that they were being punished for sinning against God, that that angel or that cherub, excuse me, that was swinging that sword was a punishment from God, that he didn't want them back in his presence, and that that was a punishment. But I want you to look at it this way. It was also protective. Remember what a cherub's job is in the Bible. Cherub's job in the Bible, when the Bible talks about cherubs, cherubs are always closely guarding the holiness of God and keeping anything unholy from coming near him. Why is that? What did God tell Moses when, when Moses asked him, God, can I see your glory? He said, no, no one can see my face and live. No one can see my face. The cherubs would, slay, would, would drive you back away from my glory. And it wasn't because God's just being mean. It wasn't because God's just being a, a malevolent dictator that wants it his way. It's because he knows his very presence will annihilate you if you are sinful. So that sword that that cherub had was protective. It was a fence keeping you from harm until the time that Jesus would come. No human being has ever met the standard that God set except for Jesus. And that's why Jesus could become our substitute. That's why he came to die and suffer the punishment that God has to give everyone who rebels against him. Jesus bore that punishment so that through faith in him, we die to ourselves and we become born again into a new nature Amen. with that new desire 
for heavenly things and not just the earthly things. The Bible compares our desires, that, that soul desire that we have for certain things in life, to what we thirst for. It compares it to a thirst. And a born-again person echoes what David said in Psalm 63 when he said, O God, thou art my God. Earnestly will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in this dry and weary land where there is no water. David is comparing the entire earth to a desert that gives him nothing to drink. And so he has to turn to God to fulfill those, all those desires within him and do so in a spiritual way. He's saying there's nothing on this earth that satisfies like one drink from your Holy Spirit will satisfy me. And we all come with having a thirst. And that thirst brings us to our next point. We're all thirsty for something. Every one of us have desires. Every one of us have wants. Every one of us has needs that we have to have met in life. And most of our life is all about chasing those needs. And that's why this verse from Psalm 63 is not necessarily going to be the cry of the natural man, the man that doesn't know God. If you ask anyone outside the Christian faith and you say, what energizes you? What makes you want to get up in the morning? What makes you um, fulfilled in life? They're never going to point out and say, well, God does that for me. They're going to point to something on this earth. For some people, it's what they do for a living. For example, whenever you meet somebody, meet somebody at a party or at a friend's house or something, and you walk up and after you say, hi, my name's John, hi, my name's whatever, and you say, oh, what do you do for a living? They always ask you, what's your job? Because most people identify themselves based upon what they do for a living. A lot of people, that is everything to them, and particularly if you went to school for a long time or you've been doing something that is is highly recognized in society, they'll always point to that as who they are and, and what they are. Or maybe somebody has um, maybe like a factory job, something they go, they punch the clock, and they go home, and they do this so that they can go and do their hobby. Maybe it's a hobby that they do. Maybe they're hunters or fishermen. Maybe you're a lady that likes to do crochet or paint or do something like that. And that is something that energizes you. And something that you that really get that fulfills a need with inside you. For some people, people it's what sports team they follow. You know, you start a, an argument around here: who's the best, the Packers or the Vikings? And and you can get into some pretty heated argument. People really follow that kind of a thing. We all have something that we look forward to, which energizes us at that base level. For the Christian, that thing should be Jesus Christ. Him and Him alone. But to the person outside the faith, it's always going to be something from this earth that's going to give them their sense of strength and joy. And it's what they use to quench their spiritual thirst. They don't understand what they're really quenching. But those, when you try to take that spiritual thirst and quench it with something from the earth, it's always going to leave you dry in the end. It's always going to run out. It's always going to be like drinking salt water from the ocean. In fact, it'll leave you more dehydrated. And for those of us who have given our lives over to Jesus, we have access to what Jesus called the water from above, the living water. 
And Jesus said that he is the living water. And everything Jesus said up to this point is meant to bring focus to this very thing that he is talking about here in John chapter 7. Remember, he's speaking to people sitting in a 100 degree heat. They're surrounded by people sweating as much as they are. Not only that, but the animals were also there in the temple. They're sweating. It probably has an interesting smell. It probably smells something. And then, on top of that, you have the burnt offering smell that was coming around. I mean, this would be the same smell you'd get from a dozen hot farm workers sitting in a barn in August having a barbecue. That's, that's, that's the environment Jesus is teaching here. Jesus uses that to show them what they really need spiritually. It's not just the momentary satisfaction of a drink of water or a thirst that is quenched, but a source of spiritual power that is going to quench the thirst that they have inside of them. It's a restoration to, of, the, of what to that point only Adam and Eve had, only, had known. No one prior to that had known what they had known, the very presence of God living within them. In verse 37, it says that on the last day of the festival, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, he cried out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and let, who, and let the one who believes in me drink. As the scriptures have said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. For he said this about the spirit which the believers in him were to receive. For as of yet there was no spirit, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And that's an incredible thought for us sitting here in the 21st century. When you sit back and you think that all those heroes we read about in the Old Testament did not have the Holy Spirit living within them. I mean, think about that. After Adam and Eve, you had Seth didn't have the Holy Spirit living within him. Noah didn't have the Holy Spirit living within him. Adam didn't have the Holy Spirit living within him. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, all the judges, including the prophet Samuel, and then even King David, did not have the Holy Spirit living within them. Occasionally the Holy Spirit would come upon a person in power so that God could use them, but they didn't have that deep abiding sense and person of God living on the inside of them. And that's what Calvary's cross and what Jesus did for you and me. That's what the representation of the veil tearing was, was that we now have access to the very glory of God the very thing that a man like Moses, who would shine from the glory of God being upon him, he could not walk into the presence of God without being destroyed. He was denied that, but we have access to that through Jesus Christ. It's all because of Jesus. And Isaiah 58 says this about this generation of believers that exist during our time now. It says that the Lord will guide you continually as the Lord God dwells within us. As the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us, he will guide us continuously to satisfy our needs in the parched places, to make our bones strong. It said, you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruin shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You will be called the repairer of the breach 
and the restorer of paths to dwell in. And that restoration in your life is available to anyone who calls Jesus their Lord and Savior. So I would ask you this morning, do you need to drink from the well of Jesus again? Do you feel helpless or hopeless or alone? Frustrated with the fact you can't get rid of this sin that is within your life or this thing that has control over you? Do you worry more than you praised? If I ask you right now, do you, what, what are you worried about? It's because you don't have the right kind of praise in your life toward God. The devil has blinded you and put all your attention on that worry instead of praising God for what he's already given you. Do you even question what is the point in life? Well, this is your answer. You need that life-giving water. Jesus made a way for you to experience that life-giving power through the very person of the Holy Spirit coming to live within each one of us. We just need to accept it. We just need to yield to the Holy Spirit who's already living inside you if you have accepted Christ as Savior. And if you have not, it's very easy to do. Come to Him admitting you're a sinner. Be sorry for your sins. Repent and believe that Jesus paid for them. And then confess Him as your Lord and Savior to the world. It's that easy. If you do that, you are born again. And the Holy Spirit will come up and take residence within you. Again, you just need to accept it.